There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive live. Talks legal. And it is our pleasure to welcome Ludmilla Yamalova to our brand new glass-fronted booth. It's a bit like being in a fishbowl, but a good fishbowl. Yes, I enjoy being in the fishbowl yeah, with yeah. the rest of you fishes. <laughs> Welcome. Well, six seconds, I'll have forgotten who you are because I have obviously memory of a goldfish. So there you are. Look, Millie's here. Look, Millie's here. Look, Millie's here. Keep telling myself that. Uh, nice to see you. So uh, the one thing that you're bringing in, it's a good place to start, I think, today, uh, Ludmilla, is the fact that there are still fraudsters around. It's not a problem that's ever going to go away, but of late... Uh, a few things that have come to your attention. Indeed, and the types of fraud, uh, frauds or the types of scams are continuing to evolve uh, naturally. Uh, in uh, the last few weeks, in fact, there have been two types of scams that have caught our attention. One, in um, sort of a, a shorter story, is the scam that was announced by the DIFC authority, and that is a number of companies were uh, holding themselves out as being properly licensed by the DIFC uh, for investment purposes and obviously soliciting investment from uh, unaware individuals and when in fact they were not properly licensed and and the documents what, what was more interesting in that case is that the documents they were presenting actually had the labels of the DIFC and the DIFCA and all the other otherwise sort of government-related logos and branding that one would expect. So this was really done at a very different level, not like before, just holding, you know, the, the, so the scams were, the nature of the scammers is evolving and becoming a lot more professional. So this was a perfect example. And in fact, the DIFC um, had uh, put out a press release and even attached copies of some of these letters that were used using the lo logo that obviously look very much, very professional, very authentic. Um, so that was one scam story that was recently um, uh, dis discussed and obviously something to, to continue to remind listeners because these, especially anything to do with money and investment uh, of money and you just, you really need to do your due diligence and that was also the moral of the story in the DIFC article and that was that ask the right questions and, and make sure to have reviewed all the re relevant documents and make sure to confirm or authenticate those documents with the relevant authorities. So that was the the moral of the story in that case. Now, the other uh, type of scams that we have recently come across in our practice, and that is one related to car sales. And I kid you not, in the last 10 days, we had three cases um, that are very much of the same pattern or fact pattern. And they go as follows. Um, somebody wants to sell a car, usually advertised on Dubizzle, um, and a potential so-called buyer um, calls in, comes to inspect the car, and then agrees on the price, and then they set a meeting in the RTA. They do the transfer. However, the transfer is based on a check. So it's not a manager's check. It's not cash, but in fact, uh, a, just a personal check. Then the car gets transferred, and the next day when the check is deposited into a bank account, it gets, uh, gets bounced. Uh, and uh, for insufficient funds uh, or closed account. We've had both cases. And then at that point, it becomes damage control because you have just sold your car, you've transferred all the rights, and there's nothing that you can do immediately. Well, why it's relevant right now is because, in many ways, um, there has been some change in the law with regards to criminality of, of checks. And in particular, with certain kinds of checks and certain amounts of checks, it doesn't necessarily go straight away to... Uh, jail sentence as it used to be before. I mean, there are obviously a, a number of nuances, but for certain kinds of cases and certain amounts, it has become easier, if you will, to kind of get away with uh, with a jail sentence, in particular, a prolonged jail sentence. So, for many for many such cases now, 
the criminal aspect of it, it has been reduced in, the, in terms of the, uh, the jail sentence uh, and also the fines, uh, fines involved, and they said the criminal fines. So therefore, the only actual option uh, that becomes available is a civil case. Well, filing a civil case takes a lot longer and it takes time. So, and in the meantime, the car is gone and the funds have... You know, are, are nowhere to be found. So uh, the moral of the story there is that make sure whenever you're dealing with money is that uh, I, the, I guess personal checks are no longer as secure guarantee as they used to be before and they have been abused recently and, and, has, and they have actually been abused at a very organized level. Um, so therefore if, you, if it is something that you um, that you're transferring for money, the, the better, I guess, the more secure way of doing it is either asking for manager's check, because a manager's check is go as good as cash, uh, or, uh, or, just, or cash. And I will tell you, in each one of these three cases, the individuals who are the sellers of the cars actually were quite experienced, and they insisted on either cash or manager's checks, and they were led to believe that that form of payment was going to be used until it was too late. Okay, so what does it cost to get a manager's check as opposed to uh, writing a It depends on the bank. We usually either 25 dirhams to 50 dirhams. Okay. But what, so it's not, it's not an expense and it's, not, uh, it's just a, a trip to the bank. But, um, but it, for a party to issue a manager's check, and this is for those who are unfamiliar, they actually have to go to the bank. They have to have that amount of cash in their bank account. And for the bank to issue the manager's check, they have to pull that money out of their account. And then on the basis of that, they issue a manager's check. Therefore, the manager's check effectively is as good as cash. But personal check obviously is not. Right. So, I mean, you can understand, can't you? If somebody said to you, Emma, bring me 75,000 dirhams in cash, you may not want to carry that much cash around. Yeah. But it, so it's reasonable for a person to say, well, look, I don't want to carry that. That's okay. Okay. But for somebody to say, I can't get you a manager's check, surely the alarm bell should be going there. Indeed. And then this is why I wanted to bring up the story, because there's always an option. Cash, and this is in that particular case, or those cases, both arguments were, um, were used in that as, well, cash, I cannot pull out that kind of amount of cash. Banks don't release that sort of uh, money on a short, not uh, short um, uh, notice, uh, which is not true either. Uh, but, uh, but the manager's checks, they just said, yes, 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 we will give you the manager's check. And this is another twist. And so in one of our clients' cases, what happened is that they brought, they didn't just bring the check, they brought actually a, a receipt that they had deposited, a bank receipt that they had deposited a check into the person's account. So it's, it's, there's another twist to it. So they said, well, in fact, we had already deposited the check. So therefore, I mean, how could you now not trust us and, and not transfer the car? Look, we have a proof that we have received, uh, that we have deposited money into your account or check into your account. And there was a lot of sort of guilt and shame that was involved. I was going to say that that seems to be a recurring story. And I, I, to be honest with you, I was going to say, I don't think this is a particularly new thing. I hear about stories about this going years and years back. So what can someone, someone that is selling to protect themselves and what can they do if someone rocks up at that last minute and they've promised cash or a, a manager's check, what happens if they then change their mind and they rock up with a personal check? Can the, pers the, the seller refuse to sell them at that point? Absolutely. And that is my recommendation because at, at that point, if you don't do that, then it really is a matter of damage control. And that is that you may ultimately get your money back, but you will have had to file first a criminal case and a civil case and pay legal fees, court fees, and most importantly, wait 
uh, for that judgment to actually be issued and even more importantly for them to hopefully be able to, uh, to collect on that judgment. So it's yet another proceeding, it's an enforcement proceeding. So absolutely, when it concerns something that is yours, it is something that's a valuable asset, you should feel no shame or no reservations to insist on the terms that you, um, that you originally asked for and that is, let's say, a, a manager's check or cash. And, and this is exactly what these um, fraudsters are playing on. There's a kind of emotional element where, um, where they, they're using sort of shame and, and embarrassment um, as, as a card to try to convince the person to actually uh, give in. Uh, and this is, you know, as, as you said, it's a very old tactic, but it's, it's a tactic that you, we must resist because it's based on emotions. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, you, you know, it's your personal asset that you're transferring over. Um, so you should absolutely stand firm and insist on the terms that, that work for you and not for them. Good advice, uh, I think. It's uh, brazen, isn't it? That's the thing. It is brazen to come out with a receipt to say, look, I, I put a check in your account. There's the proof. Not only that, oh. uh, they actually did it in Abu Dhabi. Sort of, uh, uh, you know, on the Emirate, it's a little, because it takes usually longer for the bank Clever. before the check travels from one place to another. So it's obviously organized. And in fact, um, all of our clients have reported the, the cases to the police. And the police, in some of the cases, have said, yes, this person has basically already been involved in a, a number of, uh, of, of similar incidents. So, and this is done at an organized level. And this is what our clients have concerned right now that by the time they have a judgment in their hand, even however many hundreds of thousands, maybe not hundreds, but tens of thousands of dirhams in, in costs and expenses, they ultimately may not even be able to collect on the judgment. Um, so definitely be aware and, um, and you know, if it, your inst instincts are telling you otherwise, listen to your instincts. Legal advice from Ludmilla Yamalova this afternoon from Yamalova and Pleska. That's the car scam story, brazen uh, as it is. I'm going to come back, we'll, uh, come back to the investment scams you were talking about and the documentation issues that uh, we've seen. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk to a couple of people on the phone, I know, who have uh, legal problems or legal questions for you today. If you have uh, a legal question for Ludmilla, 4001 is the text number of the free app you can text for absolutely free and you can call us if you'd like to talk to Ludmilla directly 423-1010 Miss the show or want to hear it again Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com Let's carry on with our legal questioning this afternoon. Uh, Ludmilla Yamalva is here. Ludmilla, we have somebody on the phone uh, for you. Uh, let's talk to Shiraz. Should be on line three I think. Shiraz, afternoon to you all right. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Shiraz. I have a question on the security deposit relating to the rental apartment. So recently I have vacated uh, my apartment exactly on the 31st of December. And so far I have right. not got my 5% security deposit back. So the property belongs to a very, you know, big real estate company. They have several buildings in the northern part of Dubai. So while mm -hmm. vacating the property, I got it painted, you know, cleaned the walls, everything, washed on tap chains, everything. So I made it new, almost new. But uh, so far, when I called them, uh, they said that their, secure, their maintenance company, they have told them that uh, uh, the, there are some, you know, maintenance required in the wardrobes, etc. And the charges for that maintenance is exactly that 5% of the security deposit and henceforth, no returning on the security deposit. I see. So yeah. uh, let me understand this uh, correctly, Shiraz. You've handed the apartment back in the manner in which it was handed over to you when you first uh, leased the apartment, and there is now a refusal uh, to do that. I'll hand you over to Ludmilla uh, for her response. 
Uh, well, a few comments. Number one, this is very common for landlords to resist re refunding the deposit on a whole series of of um, reasons. And number two, yeah. the fact that the building or the property is owned by big companies should not be a deterrent to you to uh, pursue your uh, your rights. And with regards to the solution, at this point, it sounds like you have exhausted everything that you could um, uh, you know, exhaust, I guess, amicably or pursue. And that is, um, you, you've you left the apartment in the state that you thought was um, you, so the original state you agreed on, returning yep. it, and uh, you've tried to negotiate with them to get your refund back or deposit back, and that hasn't really gone anywhere. So at this point, your only option is to go to RDC or the Rent Dispute Committee. Now, I know it's the deposit 5% is probably not a very significant amount, and this is exactly why so many, I mean, significant, obviously, to you, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, in, in terms of um, seeking, for example, legal representation, it just not, would not be worthwhile for you to, uh, to hire lawyers to assist you with this matter. And this is exactly why it, uh, this particular issue is so common, and that's what the landlords are relying yeah. on, is that people will just, um, you know, it'll just be prohibitively expensive for them to pursue legal actions. Well, then itself should not be a deterrent to you either, because RDC is a very efficient forum to resolve these very disputes. And in fact, we had a few weeks ago, we had a listener who called in with a success story where he himself took the case to RDC and won. And his advice was that don't be afraid of it, just be patient and understand that um, this Arabic is still uh -huh. the official language, just and as long as you take that into account. It's, you, you, don't, you do not need to have a lawyer. You do not need to go into significant expense. Uh, to okay. um, to pursue your action. So you, you can represent yourself. You just need to be ready to at least submit certain documents in Arabic or illegally translated. But otherwise, um, your your argument will be the breach of contract, and that is the landlord refused to, uh, to comply with their um, conditions under the contract, and that is refunding you the deposit. And if they have a counterclaim, which is what you said, that they're now claiming that something else, that they needed that money to cover something else, well, it will be their own um, either defense or more like a counterclaim where they will have to present documents uh, to substantiate um, that, um, that expense on their end. And it will actually have to be actual you know, receipts that they will have to prove to RDC that they had to incur. One, and two, that those expenses were actually um, not covered by, uh, you know, or they were covered by the deposit. They were not outside of the deposit. So, for example, if they decided to, you know, to change the appliances, well, that obviously is not something that your deposit was supposed to cover. So you certainly, on the legal, from a legal perspective, you have a very strong basis to pursue a case. You just, from a, an emotional and a personal perspective, you just need to be ready and that this is may most likely will not be resolved amicably and that you will have to, um, to lead this, this charge by yourself. But it certainly is something that is very manageable and has been done uh, many times before successfully. Shiraz, can I just ask you very quickly, yeah. when you repainted uh, where you lived and handed yeah. up, did you take any pictures? Do you have any documentation? I have a full whole, uh, whole, I have taken the full whole video of the whole, you know, all the rooms, the living room, okay. the kitchen, etc. So I have that video. Mm -hmm. So all the documentation is there, you have uh, a video evidence that you've returned it, which you can, I, I guess, timestamp from the video, the dates are there uh, for when yeah. you handed it back. Okay, yeah, yeah. so Ludmilla's one, advice one, is to go to the uh, rental can, disputes Can committee. I ask one sub-question? Sure. Yeah, so what I'm just, just thinking that, uh, I mean, why did I do all this? If I did not do this, so the, uh, would the real estate company be able to ask me that the, you know, maintenance done later on is more than the security deposit? Would they be able to ask me for, you know, something back over and above the security deposit? Uh, do you mean that if your expenses are less than the value of the security deposit? 
No, I'm saying that uh, later on they told me that the maintenance which they have done after I vacated the apartment is more than 5% of my security deposit, which is the whole amount of the security deposit. So, for example, the oh, security deposit is 3,500 and they told me that it uh, it cost them 5,000 to repair the, uh, the apartment. Would they be, be able to charge me more? Right. Well, so, and that's what I was saying. So it's, uh, there are two issues to it. One is the burden of proof is going to be on them and that they, they will have to prove that, in fact, they have incurred those expenses. And number two, that those expenses were actually not covered by the, uh, by the security deposit, but were supposed to be covered by the contract. So that's why I give the example. So if, they're, if they've hired somebody to do something that is not an ordinary maintenance issue, such as, let's say, replace appliances or retile the floors because they just look better, and that would mm-hmm. be your that would be your defense that those um, that those were not maintenance issues they were more repair or improvement issues and not just maintenance issues and the deposit is only meant to cover uh, the yeah. maintenance issues. Okay, Shiraz. All right. Thank Hopefully you that helps you. Uh, well, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for texting in, uh, Shiraz. That's Shiraz. Hopefully uh, that's an issue uh, that he can uh, come to a, a reasonable end, fortuitous end with uh, the uh, Rental Disputes Committee. Lots of questions uh, that we still want to get to, but I want to come back very quickly just to scams um, because we were talking, uh, and this is something that you've noticed recently, the DIFC have obviously been putting uh, information in the press to say, look, this has happened, be very careful. There are uh, investment fraudsters around. It's a, a timely warning. But one of the things uh, to do, one of the stories that you brought up was um, when you see doc- documentation, when you see credible documentation, documentation from somebody purporting to be licensed by an authority such as the DIFC, as they have warned, um, what do you do, Ludmilla? How can you do due diligence uh, when you see somebody who looks as credible? Sure, and there are ways of doing it, and 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 specifically is to confirm with the relevant authorities that that particular party actually is licensed to do what they hold themselves out um, to, to do. And to do that, for example, uh, with regards to the DFC story, and that particular company was holding themselves out as being properly licensed to, um, to do financial investments. And um, that is a highly regulated activity. And all companies that do that are actually registered with the DIC or DFSA and a number of other uh, third parties. And so you go straight to the source of those particular governments or government authorities to confirm that that um, authority A or the company A is licensed and B, that it's licensed for the right activity. Because this often happens that somebody says, yes, of course, here's my license, but the license actually does not cover the activities which they are purporting to, um, to, to basically you know, to collect money on. Um, so, and those, um, um, those facilities are available to the public, so most of the time, and in fact, make it the burden of proof on the other side. Make it on them to give you the, for example, the license number uh, so that you can confirm, and, and that usually if you have a license number or trade license number of a particular company, you can go straight to the authority and you can actually check other the details that normally are not available to the public unless you have that license number. Um, so a lot of these authorities, if you actually look at a trade license, will have a number, and if you just and there's even a link where you can validate that particular license. But in addition to that, ask them for a copy of a license that also reflects their activities. And once again, the authorities, the government authorities, do have the ability uh, to confirm that information. So that's really the best, um, the best advice I can give. Due diligence. Once again, that's legal uh, on Drive Live Talks today, Ludmilla. Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Pleska. Another 10 minutes or so, we've got more questions to get to, more text to get to, hopefully, uh, I believe somebody else on the line as well. Drive live, live today at the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships. 
This is Drive Live. Broadcasting live from the Dubai Duty-Free Tennis Championships 2018. Advantage Dubai. Only on Dubai I 103.8. Welcome back to Drive Live. Tim Elliott and myself, Emma B, here with you. We are live at Century Village for the um, Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships this afternoon. And we are talking legal with our legal legal Ludmilla Yamlova from Yamlova and Plefka in the studio with us. And we've got a question on the line. We should find Mike on the phone for us this afternoon. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Hi, Mike. And what, what is your question to Ludmilla this afternoon? Go ahead. Okay, so uh, I actually have two questions um, that related. So I'm an, I'm an avid uh, classic car refurbisher, and on occasion, um, while browsing the, the, the interweb, I find uh, a part uh, associated to the classic cars that I'm assembling available on eBay. The majority of the parts that I bring in are from the UK. So um, I'm not too f uh, sure if you're familiar with the uh, shop and ship uh, account system whereby you can have yes, a displaced uh, postal account in the country of uh, various countries. Okay, so what I do is I have the parts then obviously shipped to that local shop and ship account, and then they forward it on to me. So the question is, the first question is, a second-hand, just a second-hand part, it could be something as simple as a, as a radiator badge, uh, forwarded to me um, from, from my shop and ship account when it arrives here. Uh, previously, obviously, I just paid for the shipping, um, am I now subject to, to that on the, on, the, on, the, on the part? And obviously, remember that most of the stuff that's done online through eBay is not associated to any form of invoice. So you pay the amount and you obviously get the part to, or whatever you've bought shipped to you. And the second question is, is very similar, but now I've acquired a, 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 an item from the same country and that country, that country also has that. So, again, because I'm shipping it to a local address within that country, I'm subjected to that within that country. Then the part is obviously shipped to me. Now I want to know, am I then subjected to that again in Dubai because that is then associated to a new item invoice, okay? And how, is, how does that work? Right. So with regards to the first question, you would not be um, subject to VAT or VAT in this regard because you are just a consumer. So okay. you need to be a taxable person. It has to be a taxable transaction in order for VAT to apply. Mm -hmm. And uh, that usually means when you do something, for example, as a business. So let's say, if using your own example, if you were actually um, buying these parts because you had your own company here collecting antique cards and, and servicing these cards, in that case, you would have to pay VAT because you would be subject to it because now you're conducting a business activity. But as long as it's not a business activity, then it's just a per for personal use, then that is not subject to VAT. Uh, with regards to the second question, obviously, there is sometimes if you're actually buying something, so you wouldn't obviously be subject to uh, double VAT because you wouldn't be subject to, to VAT here to begin with. Uh, but with regards to, and I'm sure you already know that with other countries' VAT, sometimes you can reclaim that VAT when you, uh, uh, when you export the part outside of the country. So that's, you, know, that you can have some savings there, but I'm sure you already knew that. Mike, how's that? Oh, man, I tell you, you don't know how happy that makes me. <laughs> and the feeling I could hear a smile in your voice there Mike really good to talk to you thanks for coming on cheers now bye now alright let's talk to Ali should be on line 5 I think Ali welcome to the program good afternoon I, uh, may I may I ask you the question uh, it's a real estate uh, uh, issue I okay. purchased uh, 
uh, an off-plan nearly two years ago and put down about 50% of the original uh, purchase price. There was a reason for that because they gave me a good uh, discount. Now, after two years, uh, I have not received any SBA. The only thing I signed was a, reser a reservation agreement, and that's all I did, which, which basically make multiple references to the SBA, but there is no SBA. And one last okay. thing is uh, I have been there to the side, and I know there has been no progress at all and, um, and probably no contract there yet. I, I, I would like to ask whether I have a case to claim, uh, to cancel the deal and claim my refund because it's a big deposit. Okay. Sure. Well, there are two different reasons there. One is uh, absence of the documents or absence of the SBA and whether that would qualify as a breach that would allow you to bring a court case and uh, use that as a cause of action, for example. And then the other one, whether the lack of construction uh, would also at this point qualify as a potential breach of contract, once again, allowing you to, uh, to bring the case in court. Uh, so with regards to the reservation agreement itself, uh, and this is quite uh, sadly st is still um, typical where uh, companies will not follow up with a proper full-on SBA after the uh, uh, reservation agreement, but it's certainly not, un so it's not uncommon. Uh, you do not need to worry about that particular point um, that much because an agreement it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, substantiated by a lengthy piece of document that says, you know, I'm an SBA. I know in your case there are a lot of references to an SBA. But generally speaking, from the legal pers perspective, the f there has been a contract and there has been an enforceable contract, and that is you transferred money, obviously, uh, for something. And so then it just becomes a matter of proof um, of, of what the terms of the contract were. Uh, so in your case, you don't need to worry just because you don't have the SBA, you don't have a, a court case. Uh, that being said, there are certain requirements, there are certain laws that they needed to be followed, and such as, for example, the S uh, this reservation agreement needed to be uh, registered with the land department, assuming that this was a, a Dubai property. Uh, and that is a requirement. So if that in of itself, and so if your property of that interest in that property was registered with the land department, there is your security that at least that particular uh, project and your interest... Yes, sorry to interrupt you, Ludmila. This is in Abu Dhabi. This happened in Abu Dhabi. It's not in uh, in Dubai, unfortunately right, yes, yeah. or Sure. Well, Abu Dhabi has a slightly different um, system. It doesn't have a system of, of recording um, off-plan interest the way uh, we have it in Dubai. But nonetheless, so what you, it, it's, the decision is yours. If you think that, if you really don't think that they make any progress and you um, have some sort of, you know, either documentation or some kind of proof that um, could stand up in court in terms of um, showing that this development is not going to happen, for example, as per the timeline that you were led to believe it, was, it would happen, it, you can argue that there has been constructive breach of contract, and that is that there's no way on earth, and it's actually a legal theory that, that, exi that does exist, there's no way on earth that at this pace the project will actually be delivered by the original due date. Uh, and so I, I don't know, you know there, there must have been some sort of details in, in the documents that you signed on in terms of the delivery date. So if, yes, um, if let's say it was 2019. Well, Sorry. well, so yeah, so, so theoretically, still, there's still two years for them to finish. Obviously, if it's a multi-story building and it's objectively impossible to finish it in two years, which in this part of the world, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, it would be, that would be the case because they do know how to pull out miracles here. 
so um, I, I think at this point it may be too premature for you to be concerned or too premature for you to, uh, to file a case. Uh, but if you have lost confidence, you certainly, you certainly can at least bring a case on the basis that you haven't been given the documents and therefore you've some, somehow been sort of misled in terms of uh, your investment. But it will be a more, it's, it's, I guess it's a weaker case. Ali, does that help you? Okay. Um, yes, it helps me, uh, but not not to some extent. But uh, unfortunately, as Ludmila said, I don't seems I don't have a case to file a case against them. Uh, not I, not uh, with at, the completion at, date of 2019, it seems. Uh, yes. Ali, unfortunately, but it's a huge Unless... project. It's a huge project, and there is, right. they haven't laid a single stone there yet. You know, so I okay. I cannot see they can completed. Anyway, thank you. Thanks for your help. Thanks. Good luck. We do appreciate you coming on. That's Ali. Uh, hopefully uh, he can sort something. That's all we've got time for on Drive Live Talks Legal today. Ludmilla Yamalava is from Yamalava and Pleska, live at the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships in our uh, delightful glass booth. Nice to see you. It's great to Ludmilla. see you. Good to have you here. Coming up on Drive Live, we're going to be uh, giving away more I think, uh, restaurant vouchers. We are. We've got more giveaways from the Irish Village and Century Village, so we'll send our producer, Zina Zalamea, out to find more victims. She's going to get us more um, uh, willing customers, uh, is another way of putting it, I suppose. Uh, We're talking to Robbie Greenfield. He is in the media centre, keeping up with the tennis, so we'll get an update on what's happening down here live at the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.